Imagine there's no heaven It's easy if you try No hell below us Above us only sky And all the people living for today. Welcome. My name is Anne Wilson, and I'm delighted to bring you today's interview from our clinical series, Emerge Australia Podcasts. This series brings to you some of the world's leading clinicians and researchers in the field of ME-CFS and long COVID, delivering information that we hope you find stimulating and helpful. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet and pay our respects to elders past, present, emerging and those in attendance today. Dr. Elizabeth Unger, is the Chief of the Chronic Viral Disease Branch, the Division of High Consequence Pathogens and Pathology for the Centres of Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States. Dr. Unger received her undergraduate degree in chemistry at Lebanon Valley College, Anvil, Pennsylvania, and her PhD and MD from the University of Chicago. She completed her residency and fellowship in anatomic pathology at the University of Chicago and Pennsylvania State University Henshi Medical Center. In her current role, Dr. Unger is responsible for guiding research and public health studies encompassing molecular pathology and epidemiology of human papillomavirus-associated diseases and myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome. As part of her CDC tenure, Dr. Unger has served as a consultant on human papillomavirus issues for the WHO and the US Federal Drug Administration and as a consultant on MECFS to the FDA and the US National Institute of Health. Wow. (laughs) What can I say? I am so honoured to interview Elizabeth and uh, welcome you to our podcast series. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Wonderful. It's so wonderful to interview you. I met you at the NCNED conference where you were the keynote speaker and due to a timing mishap, I totally missed your presentation. So I'm even more delighted to be able to interview you today. So first of all, I want to ask you about your trip to Australia. And did you have an opportunity to take a breakdown under before returning to the US? No, unfortunately, I did not. It was a uh a whirlwind trip and made a little more challenging because I had a boot on my ankle. Uh, But it was definitely worth the uh, worth the effort to get there and back. I really enjoyed my time and I wish I could have spent more time uh, seeing the country. And I say to myself, the next time I come, I'll come uh, and stay longer. Need to. Yeah. Well, maybe next time. Absolutely. We'd love Mm -hmm. to have you back. Thank you. So we're going to do a bit of a deep dive now into uh, the aspects of your presentation. Mm -hmm. So long COVID has been credited with bringing much-needed attention to all post-acute infection syndromes, including ME-CFS. I'm wondering if you could please talk a bit about the range of unexplained post-infection disease syndromes and their relationship to ME-CFS. Sure. Um, So it's been recognized that there are a number of viral as well as non-viral infections that lead to a prolonged illness. And most often this is recognized simply as somebody doesn't get better, but but there are times when people apparently recover and then have a significant uh, relapse. And um, what brings these all 
uh, kind of together is the overlap in the symptoms. So the symptom complex of all of these illnesses is very, very uh, related uh, with a central emphasis on fatigue. Uh, many of them also have uh, a, a prolonged fatigue after exertion and, um, and, and resulting activity limitations, as well as some neurologic problems such as brain fog and, and flu-like symptoms. So um, in addition to this group that's well-recognized to follow infections, they, there's a lot of overlap with other um, syndromes such as um, mast cell activation syndrome and POTS and other conditions that are recognized just in general, post-sepsis syndrome um, and uh, something called post-ICU syndrome. So these are very poorly understood conditions, uh, overlapping symptom conditions and frustratingly uh, difficult to to diagnose because most uh, standard objective tests uh, that you would do in a regular uh, doctor visit are come out normal. Right. So can I just ask, out of mm -hmm. ignorance, are all these um, syndromes, uh, do they have PEM as, a, um, uh, as, as an area that is common to them? That, I mean, uh, it's not always asked in the same way. So um, I would say that it's not 100% clear. It's very clear for some of the conditions that, that have been, in other words, people, ha clinicians have not really been conditioned to ask about something like post-exertional malaise. They will just ask about fatigue and your activity level and not necessarily does, does activity trigger a relapse in your symptoms or your syndrome. So I'd say there's there's more that needs to be um, gathered about that. And it's a very important symptom to be recognized because um, it can really impact um, how a patient progresses in their illness. Yeah. 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 And, and that, of course, um, leads into things like, you know, better clinician education. Right, right. malaise and the mm -hmm. identification Right. Uh, and recognition of post-exertional mm -hmm. malaise in patients, which of course right. is an issue for our clinicians in Australia. Is it an issue in the US? Absolutely, very much so. It's still a very still a need for a lot of clinician education. Yeah. And and I'd say that's the one thing that has happened with long COVID is it has raised the uh, profile of all of these conditions. So the clinicians are really starting to um be interested and try to learn about these things. Um, yeah. 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 That's great. Thank you for that. So what do you see as the challenges of MECFS of, of FS, um, within post-infection disease syndromes? You know, is it is it is it the same as generally that, you know, it's fighting to be heard and seen. And um, what do you see as the major challenges? Well, um, major is, it's hard to pick which is most major. Um, but yes, recognizing the condition, um, it's a very um, uh, silent or hidden, um, invisible disease, uh, sometimes people say, because often when patients do come to the uh, the healthcare providers, they're on their good, their best days, and they look normal. Um, and so you're left with, um, the clinician is left with just a report of, uh, of these symptoms, which are hard to quantify. So I think that recognition of the condition is, is prime. Um, in common with all of the uh, post-infectious syndromes, there's not a single a single diagnostic test uh, that can or a, that can really identify distinctly that this is a post-infectious syndrome or that this is MECFS. And while the symptom profile, the core symptom profile, is very characteristic, you can't diagnose a patient just on that symptom profile. The patients need a careful clinical evaluation to identify any other treatable medical conditions that could be contributing to the symptoms. 
So it really requires um, time, which is a precious commodity in the clinical evaluation, but time to consider all of the um, possible conditions that a patient may have contributing to the illness that they're experiencing. Um, yeah. So, so if we had a really quick way to, you know, come in and get a test and say, yes, you have this, um, it would be, uh, I think, a lot easier for the clinicians and be easier for the patients. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, the 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 fact that there is not a single diagnostic marker feeds mm -hmm. into uh, our next. Um, question. So with long COVID, of course, we know that the initial trigger um, is COVID. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how important is the link to infection in MECFS from your perspective, given that we know that not all, not all MECFS is, is caused by a precipitating infection? Right. Uh, well, it, I, I think it sort of depends on what you mean by important. I, and um, I think that we are still studying what role latent or occult infection or persistent, you know, pieces of the, the virus or the, the inciting, the triggering infection may have in, in, in uh, the ongoing illness. But apart from that, currently the, the, the management of MECFS and all the post uh, the unexplained post-acute infectious syndromes is very symptom-based. So the particular pathogen that may have triggered the event is really not important in that symptom-based approach to, to management. Now, when we get more data, there may be subgroups of patients um, that have a, an occult or a persisting infection that needs um, to either be treated or to have the um, the immune or inflammatory response modulated um, in some way by a specific drug. And so one of our hopes is that we will have better biomarkers to identify uh, the subgroups within this very diverse condition. I mean, I mentioned that the unexplained post-acute infectious syndromes have a, a core symptom profile but there's a lot of heterogeneity in the individual symptoms that patients experience and how the illness affects them. So um, the illness has a great deal of heterogeneity, even when it's caused, even when we know it's caused by one specific pathogen. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. And and certainly um, from the little that I know in the time that I've been in, in this area, that, that appears to be the case. Everybody's disease is so unique. Uh, yes. mm -hmm. And uh, I think that the other thing is that whilst clinicians are now um, focusing more on the impact of long COVID in their patients, the fact that there is um, no uh, link really with any uh, known pathogen uh, in their MECFS patients really renders them quite impotent to actually do anything about it. And a lot of our clinicians just are at a loss to know yeah. how to treat their patients. And I mean, I would say the same is true really for a lot of the long COVID patients. The, um, the majority of the evidence is that the, the the COVID infection has been cleared, at least it's cleared as far as, um, you know, we, we can tell there may be some antigen persisting somewhere. Uh, but for the most part, um, there's nothing specific about the fact that they were triggered by, by SARS-CoV-2. Um, and I think that's where the, you know, the particular infectious trigger may not be as important as trying to understand what pathologic process has been triggered by that pathogen. And a whole variety of pathogens could trigger the same um, pathogenesis. And um, at, at, the, at the recent meeting in Australia, there were a lot of talks about the different, uh, different things that SARS-CoV-2 could do or that could be happening in MECFS by other uh, pathogens. Um, such as the microplots, the changes in the endothelium, um, 
autoimmunity, uh, mitochondrial damage, uh, you know, a whole variety that that um, is very fascinating at this point to try to figure out how to put all of these pieces together to get the puzzle that is ME-CFS. Yeah, so. yeah, it sure is a puzzle. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to switch a little bit on to uh, looking at how our different countries mm-hmm. uh, address ME-CFS. And mm-hmm. in Australia, whilst there is no doubt that long COVID has helped to shine a light on ME-CFS, mm-hmm. there's really very limited recognition Um, in projects that are funded, in in research that is funded, to use MECFS as a resource for um, the work that is being done in long COVID. Um, Mm -hmm. The reality is that there's a great focus on just long COVID and, Mm -hmm. oh, well, if, by the way, we find something helps MECFS, then so be it. So mm-hmm. it, it just seems that to me, you know, particularly focusing on the NCNED conference, um, mm-hmm. there's so much amazing work being done in MECFS. Uh, I, I find it difficult to understand why um, policymakers are not looking at that to help them guide uh, what to do about long COVID. Is that the same in the US? And maybe um, could you give us a bit of an insight into uh, the approach uh, in the US? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, obviously I can't speak for the whole federal government. I'm just an observer here to, to some extent. But um, I think pretty early on, uh, we were able to raise MECFS as an example um, that could be helpful in uh, caring for patients with uh, long COVID, as well as in educating clinicians how to uh, approach the, um, the, the the diagnosis and management of this these symptom-based um, conditions. So, um, so for example, the long COVID um, information for clinician sections on CDC's website adopted the, a lot of the materials that we had prepared for MECFS for use for patients with long COVID, um, including um, some of the advice for children with long COVID, what kind of school accommodations they would need. Um, At the same time, um, the the funders, the politicians um, are being, you know, sort of bombarded about long COVID, long COVID, long COVID, and they're seeing, and, and they're asking, you know, what is, what is everybody going to do to help patients with long COVID? Um, and uh, so there is still this little bit of a tension, I would say, between long COVID and, quote, other things. Um, but we are definitely having a dialogue about how to best make sure that the long COVID, uh, patients with long COVID, as well as the other patients with um, these unexplained post, post-infection syndromes are cared for sort of under the same rubric. Um, this isn't. This has not achieved any kind of a policy level or anything. It's a dialogue. And one of the things that is involved in the dialogue is we had the our National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, which is NASM, um, had a meeting about uh, to get people to talk about, and they called it infection-associated chronic illnesses um, and how what this means. And it was very striking at all of those presentations. It was very, uh, very much MECFS came up all the time as, as, as an example, as the as where we have the most understanding of what happens to patients that have these conditions, the problems that they encounter, the kind of care that they need, and the kind of research that needs to be done. So mm-hmm. I think it's it's still a work in progress, um, and um, we need to keep raising it as often as we can. Yeah. Um... <laughs> oh, sorry, I could say one more thing, and, and that is, um, it's even becoming as as the as the pandemic has progressed, you know, and and the testing is sort of done at home or not done. 
um, more and more, it's really hard to know who has had COVID, who may be having post-COVID and who may be having post-something else. Yes. Um, and um, we've made that argument as well. Um, how are you going to say if this is a COVID con condition or not? Because because before, you know, during the time of the pandemic, uh, patients that didn't have a test, you could say, okay, it was the time of the pandemic. They had the symptom profile, you know, that kind of fit in. Um, and when there was a lot of testing going on sort of prospectively, we identified people that developed the long, a, a post-COVID condition, ME-CFS-like, who didn't really have symptoms, but definitely had a positive test. I mean, didn't have acute symptoms, but, you know, eventually developed a chronic illness. So, so I think there's, it, it's going to be hard to exclude other groups as time goes on, there's going to be more and more overlap and blurring of the uh, of these conditions. Yeah, um, you're clearly um, a step ahead, if not 10 steps ahead of where um, our recognition is, uh, because um, as far as as really including MECFS seriously. I've now been to several long COVID conferences and, uh, you know, the minute the term MECFS was raised in mm. question time, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, there was almost a desire to shut it down mm. by speakers because let's not talk about MECFS. We're here to talk mm. about long COVID. Long COVID. So it is, uh, we've got a long way to go. And, right. You know, uh, one of the other problems is long COVID is used is as such a giant umbrella term. And many people talking about long COVID are including uh, the uh, the syndromes that develop after direct organ damage from the, from the uh, acute infection. For example, those that have lung fibrosis or kidney damage or heart damage, you know, demonstrable organ pathology. And they group those also in the same um, in, in the same term. And that is also a bit confusing. And the long COVID clinics were set up largely, I think, to deal with um, what they thought was going to be an onslaught of these organ people with residual organ damage from the acute infection. And now they're starting to, to understand, oh, gosh, we've got this other group that the um, routine tests are coming out normal, but they have all of these symptoms the profound activity impairment, the, the brain fog, you know, the post-exertional malaise. So um, so that, I think that's also a, a problem in the field, this complex terminology <laughs> that we've not totally refined and people could be talking about different things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that resonates with me and, and things that I've experienced and heard. So um, could you tell us a little bit about the long COVID and fatiguing illness recovery program? Mm -hmm. uh, what is it and sure. what are its benefits, please? Yeah, so um, we established this in collaboration with the uh, Family Health Centres of San Diego, um, as well as Project Echo and the University of uh, uh, University of Washington uh, School of Medicine, and the Family uh, Health Centers of, of San Diego is what is called a federally qualified health center. And in the U.S., um, our healthcare system is not universal, and so the federal government funds um, a number of these uh, centers to take care of those that are uninsured or underinsured. And so the majority of patients that they see are um, uh, in the lower levels of poverty and a high, uh, high proportion of minorities. It's sort of a, a clinic of last resort. And um, what the, the goal of the project was, was to, was to see if um, we, if they could develop a method to educate their primary care physicians about how to care for patients first started out with long COVID. That was how the, the contract, uh, well, I think we originally, we said long COVID and 
other fatiguing illnesses like ME-CFS. That's how we kind of put the contract out there. And they proposed a, um, a project that allowed for testing of their approach. So it's sort of like an implementation trial. It's listed as a clinical trial in, in us. Um, and they have um, a control group, which are their uh, clinicians that just get the monthly webinars and an intervention group, which are clinicians that get the monthly webinars as well as weekly um, echo sessions. And the Project Echo is a way to allow for sort of telemedicine consults. And they uh, included a lot of academic experts, um, volunteered to give their time and expertise to discuss individual cases with the presenting clinician. So the Project ECHO is meant to be a very um, sort of personal way, in a, in a small community where there's a lot of trust that allows the clinicians to present a patient and say, look, I don't know what to do. This is my problem. You know, help me figure out, you know, what's the best way. And then they get their consult. One other very important and unique thing that they did was that they included uh, a, a person with lived experience in every session. And that's in the monthly webinars, as well as in the weekly teaching sessions. And that was very, very helpful in, uh, in allowing the clinicians to really understand the patient's perspective of the illness that they were experiencing. And the patients were very helpful, often they were MECFS patients, um, in sharing their experience with um, off-label medications, with you know, various approaches to managing specific symptoms. And um, it just set the tone of respect for the patient experience in all of these things really was, is really, now it's, it's still ongoing. Um, we, as a result of the, uh, the, the monthly webinars are open to everybody um, that, that can, uh, they're still online and can be uh, used, but you can get continuing education credits if you sort of sign on live. Um, those monthly webinars have been attended by uh, more than uh, 4,000 uh, people and um, covered over 59 countries even calling in. And we think that the, that the ECHO model, where you've got the primary care physician caring for the patient, but they get the support of a multidisciplinary experts, um, could really help improve uh, patient care uh, given by primary care providers. Because we have this demonstration part of it, at the end of the study, we'll be able to compare patient satisfaction, patient outcomes, clinician satisfaction in the two arms of the study. And we're also going to be comparing the outcomes um, that can be achieved at the University of Washington with their fully um, you know, tertiary care academic center. So um, while the Project ECHO is, we think is a model that'll be very important for improving access to care, which is one of the biggest problems that we have. Um, the actual data to demonstrate that it does improve care really is not there. So we hope that this study will provide the data um, and will encourage expansion of this kind of a, of a program. Yeah, it's so um, important. Uh, we at Emerge Australia uh, ourselves uh, do um, clinical education of, mm -hmm. of our GPs, but that is through our medical director doing some advanced clinical education at our um, major GP conferences. Um, but that is very slow going because... Mm -hmm. You can only educate so many people at a conference over three days. And um, I think he does about five hours of, of clinical education. And that is all uh, mm -hmm. uh, accredited. They, they, mm -hmm. Doctors can get their accreditation. But a trial, uh, a potentially a clinical trial, 
um, like the one that you're describing um, is an amazing approach and, and the most important part of it from our perspective as the National Patient Organisation is the inclusion of uh, patients with lived experience to be advisors mm-hmm. uh, to the clinicians. And I guess that, um, you know, that doesn't happen um, very often. We've mm-hmm. certainly been called on and, and patients have been called on to uh, participate in various reviews as mm-hmm. um, people with lived experience, but that doesn't necessarily mean that their advice is taken on board. Mm-hmm. And so clearly we've got a lot to learn uh, from uh, this project and I think at another time I'll be wanting to do a bit of a deep dive, not just into this project but also ECHO. Um, yeah, so that's encouraging for me because uh, we're just um, applying for more funds and mm-hmm. looking at collaborations to uh, expand our own clinical education programs. Our systems are very different with regard mm-hmm. to being mm-hmm. able to access clinicians in in some ways it's a little bit easier in Australia than under our health system than it is uh, in the US but um, nevertheless the the structure of the program and the way it's been set out I think is a wonderful uh, initiative and um, something that we could do very well to um, try to emulate. Well you know, I, I will, you know, we knew that including the patient perspective was going to be helpful, but I would say I have been just overly impressed. Uh, I mean, I, I can't emphasize to people how much of a difference it made. Um, and I feel like this group in the family, it's, it's unfortunately a small group that's involved um, in the weekly sessions. Um, even though we have more in the in the in the monthly uh, that also get the benefit of the patient perspective, but it's really in the those weekly sessions that they work together. Um, I I don't think they'll they've been transformed. I think um, and originally when we started working with them, they said, "Oh yes, fine, we will include MECFS, but we really don't see those patients." Yep. And, and then after uh, a couple of months of working on this, all of a sudden they realized they did see those patients yeah. and they had not recognized them. Yes. So this is just, it's just, it's always exciting to see the lights come on and, uh, and people kind of click into, into the problem. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. And uh, you know, I can't begin to tell you how many clinicians have told us uh, at the various conferences that we participate in that we don't see many of those patients. Mm-hmm. But when, when we can have a little bit of a discussion with them and say, really? Uh, and, and say, you know, start to describe some of the, the, the symptoms, they go, well, mm-hmm. yeah, probably we do, you know. So... Uh, I, I think that that's um, very much the same, but I, I do believe we've got a lot to learn from the example uh, of this program that could absolutely help us in what is a pretty daunting task of trying to educate um, yes. our general practitioners. It's pretty daunting because uh, it's not as if one size fits all. Um, it's a costly uh, exercise and, uh, of course, um, given that we don't necessarily have any therapeutics um, mm-hmm. or, or many therapeutics, um, right. the funding for these kinds of projects uh, is very difficult to access. So yeah. um, lots of very good messages in that for, for us here in Australia. Emerge Australia aims to ensure that anyone impacted by MECFS or long COVID has access to support, information and advocacy that empowers them with the knowledge and skills to make their lives more livable.
we offer support to over half a million Australians who face ME-CFS and long COVID. So now I'm going to get to the question that I'm absolutely itching to ask you, and that is about the need for an integrated approach mm-hmm. to ME-CFS and post-acute infectious syndromes, including long COVID. Um, this is something that was, was part of your talk uh, in, in Australia recently, and I'm interested to hear from your perspective, how can this be achieved what would the benefits be to a country, to a healthcare system, and then most importantly to patients of having an integrated approach? Because Emerge Australia has been um, advocating uh, probably for 18 months now mm-hmm. that uh, it would be really important for Australia to have a national post-acute infection disease um, syndrome strategy that includes MECFS because right now MECFS isn't included anywhere. Uh, right. So I'm very keen to hear about your responses to that issue. Right, right. So, um, yeah, MECFS without an identified pathogen is left kind of to fend for itself. But if you recognize that uh, at least some cases of MECFS are triggered by an infection and the fact that all of these um, unexplained post-acute infectious syndromes are really clinically managed the same way, it's really quick to see that a clinical center organized around the care that all of these patients need um, would make a lot lot more sense. In other words, having a separate MECFS clinic and a separate clinic for post-treatment Lyme and a separate treatment for post-EBV and a separate clinic for each of those, you know, various, you know, long COVID separate things doesn't, isn't as efficient as having a, a, a sort of a unified approach uh, to caring for the patients. So I think it would be helpful um, in terms of access to care right? It, it, it becomes cost effective then. And that's the one thing that we keep hearing, you know, medical costs are going up. How can we have individual clinics? We don't have enough clinicians and expertise to staff all of these, but if they're kind of grouped um, so that uh, you have sort of efficiency of scale. Um, and I think so, and from the patient perspective, um, I think it's it just is an improved access to care. Um, that's the main advantage. Then, from a research perspective, I think the real you know the problem. I mean, we've been grappling with MECFS for years now. Long COVID, people are starting to ask some of the similar kinds of questions, um, and you know, saying it is the same. You know, you've got some groups saying I need it. MECFS is the same. No, it's different. Uh, we don't have the data. Um, and looking at uh, MECFS as a case control study, so you look at MECFS patients and then you look at healthy controls, but you don't need a study to do that. You know, the clinicians don't have the problem of saying, is this person healthy or not? Um, they know that answer. They have the problem, is this MECFS or is this something else? Um, and so we need to include a lot of these other illness controls as comparison groups so we can start to identify common uh, pathways of, uh, that could be involved in the pathogenesis uh, of these, all of, all of these very heterogeneous um, conditions. And now how that will happen. <laughs> Is, is another question. And I think uh, the more that we raise the issue and talk about the similarities and the, the need for research um, the, and publish uh, data showing uh, the similarities and you know asking for more research is the, the, the best approach. That we yeah. Can. yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting, isn't it? Um, certainly in Australia, and it looks as though it's the same in most countries, that our um, our policies and then our bureaucracies silo down into mm. 
individual diseases. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, from the outsider looking in, you go, how crazy is that? You know, we have categories and silos that are quite deep for things that are very, very similar. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly from an impact perspective of the disease, we know that the impact of long COVID and the impact of MECFS and potentially other post-infection disease syndromes is exactly the same. You know, mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. lose their livelihoods, they can't, they can't work, they can't function, they can't think, they can't go to school, can't play sport. It, you know, it completely changes their lives. So the impact is the same, but mm -hmm. we treat them from a bureaucratic perspective in silos. And we're spending money on each of those silos individually when it just makes sense to look at them as part of one strategy given their commonalities. Mm -hmm. um, so what you're saying is music to my ears, but um, it's not necessarily music to the ears of our policymakers, but we have to keep trying and trying to keep beating that drum very, very loudly for um, patients. So thank you for that answer. Um, we've got lots of work to do here. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed, yeah. So uh, can you tell me, is there anything that's exciting you currently in the MECFS field? Yes. Well, you know, I think one of the, Thing that's exciting is that uh, there are more new researchers interested in MECFS and new, not only new researchers, sometimes they're new senior researchers that, that come to the field with a lot of experience and expertise in a, a, a related area that had never thought that MECFS was related to their work. But uh, we also have a whole little crop of new junior uh, researchers coming along um, that are uh, ready and anxious and eager and interested in this question. You come with that without some of the biases perhaps that uh, that others that others may have. So that's one exciting thing. And I think the other exciting thing is that there's more research. Long COVID has really sort of primed the pump. Um, started uh, giving a lot of hypotheses out there that people are starting to test in MECFS and other uh, related conditions. And uh, there's little tantalizing uh, ideas that some of these apparently divergent fields are starting to converge um, such that you can sort of see how infection may trigger some of the auto-inflammation or the autoimmune or uh, the, the infl inflammatory derangement could be uh, damaging the mitochondria. And, you know, and people have looked at this at various, in various system levels, and we're just sort of tantalizingly close to trying to get them all merged into a, a unified theory, which would be very exciting. Um, so yeah. I, I, yeah, so it's the new, it's the new, new research, new researchers. I think that's that gives that's most exciting. Yeah. That's that that's really promising. As you were speaking, the thought went through my mind, of course, that one of the other challenges that we experience is that um, we're certainly told by new graduates coming out of med school that um, they really haven't had much training mm -hmm. in. Um, in whether it's MECFS or post-acute infection syndromes, et cetera. Is, is that pretty consistent as well with yes. what's in the US? That is, that is consistent in the US too. Um, and, you know, medical school curriculums are absolutely packed uh, with information. And, you know, if you go to them and want to add another topic, um, pretty much uh, it's pretty hard to do, uh, but some, uh, very ingenious <laughs> educators have figured out ways to sort of get MECFS content in uh, to uh, into other lessons. So and either MECFS in the differential diagnosis of a bunch of other conditions, 
MECFS in how you interview a patient. Um, those are um, interviewing skills. And um, so there are ways to do it, to get it in, but it is not, um, it's not universally done. I do think that long COVID has raised the possibility of, of people getting more information about uh, syndromes that happen after acute infections. Um, and hopefully that will change the tide. But right now that is unfortunately still still the answer. A lot of medical schools don't really cover it. Yeah, and and that seems to be an area that really needs to be addressed mm -hmm. because, mm -hmm. you know, in future, um, our future doc or doctors of the future need to know and they need, right. Right. need to be trained. Um, it'll take a lot of the pressure off the um, uh, education that needs mm -hmm. to happen. Uh, if it, yeah, so, yeah. It, absolutely. Nurses, the same way for nurses and nursing schools. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, all the all the healthcare providers, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, uh, there's just a huge need for, for medical education at all levels and all levels of experience. Now, you said your access to clinicians is pretty good. In the U.S., we, I, I often feel like, I mean, CDC has had educational materials available through free, through Medscape for years. Um, and it's a matter of uptake. And clinicians have to be interested enough to take the course. Uh, and you have to get them interested. Um, and so yeah. that's why long COVID has sort of peaked uh, there's been a little bit of an uptake um, in in this because of long COVID. So, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, it, and that's what we started off with, isn't it? That yes, yes, yes. Uh, you know, uh, long COVID has helped us to mm -hmm. shine a light on MECFS, but we need that light to keep shining, and and we we need some of that focus to shift right. to MECFS and and other. Right. Sequelae, yes. So um, as a final question to you, um, what hope can you leave um, with our listeners in terms of improvements, um, I don't know, different ways of treating MECFS? Is there hope on the horizon for our patients who, as you know, many of them have been uh, suffering uh, with this illness for many, many years, been bedbound, mm -hmm. housebound. What hope is there for um, the future treatment um, of medicine for these patients? Right. I mean, I it, I am more hopeful than I've been in years, and that's just because of the infusion of the new research interest. It takes. It's going to take more research till we get to really um, uh, the ability to uh, subgroup patients so that we know what treatment will help them and their particular symptoms. Um, and I feel that we're getting closer in some areas. Um, the NASM workshop that I mentioned on infection-associated chronic illness, the whole last day. I mean, they ended up their last uh, last presentations were about approaches to treatment, what to think about uh, treatment. And that was very, very encouraging. It's not like there's a drug trial on, uh, on the horizon that I can point to, um, but people are definitely thinking that way, um, that there's got to be a, a better way than symptom management, which is where we're at now. There's a energy in the field that is new, I think, um, again, largely because of long COVID. And we always talk about how long COVID energized, you know, this field. But I think my point, one point I was trying to make in my talk at the meeting was MECFS has done a lot for the field of long COVID as well. And experience with MECFS and the MECFS patients themselves have been so generous in helping. They knew this was going to happen. Um, and in helping their uh, their colleagues who developed a similar kind of illness following SARS, I mean, I've just been so impressed at the 
sort of the fellowship of the the patients that they have been so kind with their time and their limited energy. Um, so I do think I do think there's hope, and I wish there were you know a, a drug right on the horizon that I could say yes, I see that coming. I don't see a particular drug coming, um, but I definitely see progress towards treatment. Well, that's hope, and yes, yes, yes. coming from someone. Uh, with your experience, that's uh, something that's really positive to hang on to, particularly uh, at the end uh, of a year that's been uh, filled with so many developments in the area. So, Dr. Elizabeth Unger, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, we look forward to keeping in touch with you. I certainly look forward to keeping in touch with you and hearing more about your work and the developments in the US in the coming year. And I take this opportunity to wish you uh, a very happy festive season and a wonderful, productive and peaceful year in 2024. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. And thank you for your interest in the work and I'm happy to be here. That's a pleasure. So today's podcast is part of our clinical series brought to you by Merge Australia. Our aim is to bring the work of our brilliant clinicians and researchers from all over the world to our Australian MECFS and long COVID community, promoting the latest research developments and providing hope. This is a platform where together we can explore the pressing issues faced, faced by 250,000 people with MECFS and at least 400,000 more with long COVID. Tune in again for our next interview and don't forget, for more information and to subscribe to the Emerge Australia newsletter, visit our website on www.emerge.org.au. Thank you very much, Elizabeth, again, and bye for now. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us And the world